Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper. This is episode 52, The Conference in York. Jonathan Menges unfortunately was unable to join us today, so this episode of the podcast will call in as its second string host, me, Allie Ryder. Joining me today are several speakers from the conference as well as attendees to discuss the various talks and events that occurred that weekend. From the speakers list, we have Neil Story, a historian of note with over 30 books to his credit, including The Dracula Secrets. We also have Rob House, the author of Jack the Ripper and the Case for Scotland Yard's Prime Suspect. We're additionally joined by Trevor Bond, a regular speaker at the UK conferences. And from the audience panel, we have Neil Bell, who is a noted writer and researcher, Mark Ripper, author of The Moat Farm Mystery, and Melanie Clegg, a writer and blogger who can be found at madamguillotine.org.uk. Welcome and thank you everyone for joining us. Hello. Thank you. Hi, Hi, Alan. So, um, I guess the best way to go about doing this would just be to sort of maybe go in a bit of a chronological order and discuss the speakers as they went. And so our first speaker for the conference was the eminent John Bennett speaking about the strange case of James Lampard. Oh, no, wait, that wasn't what he spoke about. Anybody want to <laughs> fill us in on the story there? Um, it's uh, Monty here, Neil Bell. Um, yeah, uh, I believe John was actually going to talk about the strange case of James Lampard, but he felt that he couldn't uh, bring anything new to it that wasn't already out there in the ether on the internet. So he did actually change his uh, talk to um, basically a subject he knows well, because it's his job, uh, tour guiding. And I thought it was a very good talk too. Um, I, well, I found it very interesting, obviously, um, and I don't know what you guys think of it. I, I thought it was a great talk. I really liked John's talk. It was one of the more, most enjoyable ones, anyway. Very funny. Yes, it was good fun. I agree. I think it was it was light. It was humorous. It was a, sort of like a palate cleanser for starting the day. It wasn't anything excessively serious, but it did get into sort of the seriousness of how you can sort of come into those conflicts of you're basically taking people around sites of murders where people are still living and how that can kind of cause conflict within the in the community, the ghoul nature of it versus the educational nature of it. And I think he did a very, very good job of sort of drawing the distinctions between the two. Mm. Um, one of the things which as John uh, said during the talk, and I think he finds generally is that people who are new to the area tend to be more aversive towards the Ripper tours, and then uh, people who who have lived in uh, East London for a long time appear to be a, a lot more accommodating, which is an interesting distinction to draw, I think. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I do think he made, the, the one comment that was interesting was just recently there was, and of course I'm going to forget the name, so please someone jump in and tell me the name, but there was a, a recent tour company that tried to do a um, tour guide of the murder sites of a very recent case where it was like the mother of victims were still living in the area where they were trying to do tours and how everybody sort of went, Oh my gosh, that's ghastly tour guiding on more on murder. And then he's like, Oh, wait a minute. That's what I do for a living. But there was, there's still that distinction between distance and time kind of makes it less of a, of a ghoulish aspect and more of a historical interest aspect. What was the name of the case? I cannot for the life of me remember it. Wasn't it the Yorkshire Ripple one? Oh, I don't know. I it was, can't remember. It was something really recent because it was even discussed on the yeah. boards, I remember, and yeah. everybody was just appalled that they well, would do this. 
Yeah, I think John actually picked it up from a newspaper article or something like that, if I remember correctly. And he was he was passing judgment. Oh my God, how horrific! And then he suddenly realised that um, it's kind of what he does. However, it's not. I don't think it's exactly the same. I mean, John does. I've heard bits and bobs of John's uh, talks, uh, tours, I should say. And he, he, there is a historical background. Not he doesn't yeah. just solely stick to the crimes and the murders. He gets a historical context, yeah. um, which uh, again I've listened to to Philip Hutchinson on tour as well he does exactly the same thing so it's it's not just solely revolving around the murders and the crimes themselves well historical no. context for the yorkshire ripper yet isn't there really because i mean the 80s aren't really that far away so there's not there's not really the same sort of thing going on culturally there's yeah. just the murders and that's all to really talk about unless you want to bring thatcher into it but we'll do that <laughs> and the very key point that there aren't mothers of victims still living outside the buildings where tour guides are going along going and this is where so-and-so was slaughtered while the mother is you know one block down well yeah i mean i i I did the talk in uh, 2007 um on catherine erdos i went through a blow-by-blow account of um, her movements after she was a a release from bishopsgate sorry after she was arrested sorry then released from bishopsgate right up until a murder and it got to the part where i was describing um, what happened to her in Mitre square how she was killed and it was something that that didn't rest easy with me it was a bit it did great on me a bit but uh, the guy i did work with as you all know the guy that does the images for the documentary Lucanen. I spoke with him and he, he said, well, you don't want people be feeling comfortable, as it were. You, you do want to have that horrific, because it was an horrific crime. It was a, a horrible, horrible thing. Um, however, I did the talk and um, then I met up with two, I think they were descendants. I don't think they were direct descendants, but they were descendants of sorts of Eddowes. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry that, you know, I did go into a bit of graphic detail there regarding uh, Catherine. And they said, well, we knew as much of her, probably less than you do. It wasn't as if it was a direct relation, you know, a, a, a daughter or mother or, or however, which probably would have stuck home. So it's kind of, you know, making it uh, <laughs> a long way of making Melanie's point. It isn't a direct memory as, as such, if you know what I mean. Mm. I, I think the, the important thing is, and I, I work a lot in genealogy and family history circles, is that once you do get a hundred or so years between a, a dramatic murder and, and somebody researching their family history, quite often they consider it, uh, it's a, it's a, it can be quite colourful for them. Yeah. You know, it, it, it adds a, a dark mirror to society at that time and, and, and their family, their distant relative, was part, a key part of, of, of those events. And, and I think they, they take a view that it is far more history than something that has caused them or their immediate relatives pain or suffering. But it can be different from family to family. I, I'm very friendly with uh, the descendants of Catherine Frary. She was one of the Burnham poisoners here in Norfolk. And when I first met them, they couldn't really talk comfortably about it because Granny was still alive. And Granny's mum was the grandchild of one of these women convicted of those murders. But when grandmother passed away, they can speak far more freely about it. They've gone to see the, the murder sites together as a group. And it's become part of that their family tree and their family story. But I think each each case can be very different depending on the crime. And Trevor, I believe you had something you wanted to say about uh, John Bennett's speech? 
All I, all I wanted to, to say, really, and just to get a, a bit of an idea, maybe what some of the other, particularly the other, sort of the other British chaps thought, was what I found quite fascinating about John's talk was, which was obviously, as I'm sure we've discussed, it was, it was his sort of sub talk, if you like. But, uh, but I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was really, actually, really current. And what was quite interesting was it was only a couple of days after getting back from the conference that I really realised how sort of current and how important a sub a discussion it, it actually was to have because and you know this may have been been touched on but you know the the fact that a couple of days after we all got back from York the the go ahead was given to to all intents and purposes you know destroy what is left of of Dorset Street um, we've got the potential well we've got. Um, the bridge through to Woods Buildings down by Whitechapel Station. That's now that's in the process of being removed at the minute. Um, the frontage of the Royal London Hospital is, you know, under discussion. What's going to happen to that now? I'm, I'm sure it's listed. I'm sure the, the, you know, it's a fabulous building. I'm sure that 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 will stay, but it's not going to stay within its its current and you know long term use. Obviously, those those sites aren't aren't quite so relevant to the the majority of all of the uh, the paid walking tours, but certainly. You know, the fact that Dorset Street is going, the fact that Mitre Square is going in its current form, which, OK, isn't the, the original 1888 form anyway, but has always been one of those areas that feels like it almost could be. And uh, I'm just... It was coming back from the conference, as I say, and hearing... I had Mitre Square in my head listening to John anyway, and I'd spoken to John previously and again that night about quite how, you know, the tour guides are going to get around that area, you know, including that area at least while the work's going on, if not afterwards, the street is going as well. I think, you know, there, there's a genuine case for saying where do the tours go from here, I think, because, you know, if you've got a ripper tour, the route that most of them take to get all the, to get as many sites as possible in within a reasonable time frame and walking distance, if you've got a ripper tour without, you know, Mitre Square and, and, and Dorset Street, I'm not sure how much of a tour you've got, really. And, and so it's quite, I'm sure they will survive because as John was proving, you know, and uh, what I did think was quite interesting, what he said is the classic, I think if most of us were writing a script for a talk about Ripper tours, we'd all have said, oh, the first tour was um, the lady who went around Miller's Court. The name of yeah. her name escapes me at the minute. Um, but that's the one. Um, but what John was saying was, it, you know, the first sort of such a thing was actually on the morning of the 8th of September, 1888, with the people renting out their windows in Hanbury Street. So, you know, it's got a long tradition and it will survive. But I think that that sort of snapshot discussion of, of how the tours are now with from someone who is going to be involved in, in seeing how they move on. And I think they're going to look quite different by the time we all get back together. So I thought that was quite, quite sort of fascinating and just got me thinking about a lot of things, really. And I don't know how everyone feels about the whole, you know, the... the the inevitability of the area changing and i know john himself has spoken on the podcast previously that you know he is fully of the belief that it's ridiculously slightly morbid sort of sentimentality to expect that people are going to preserve places just because there was a grisly murder there but you know especially with you know dorset street and the fruit and wood exchange we're looking at places that are you know jack the ripper aside they're of major you know historical importance to the to the area really so Mm. I just thought that was quite an interesting angle that, that came out of John's talk, really, rather than being part of it. Well, personally, as an American, you know, it's interesting to me because I go to England and places uh, that have hundreds of thousands, you know, hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands of years of history because we don't 
really have that sort of thing here in the States. We have a couple hundred years at most. We don't have hundreds and hundreds of years stacked upon each other. And one of the interesting things about York was the fact that, you know, there is literally 2,000 years of history layered on top of that city. And I think I understand, you know, the idea of not preserving something just because there's a grisly murder. But I do find it sad that so much of history gets bulldozed aside in the name of progress and building the new shiny glass thing mm-hmm. as opposed it's to... True the the solid you know the, the thing that we're all going to see we're not going to see the shiny glass buildings we can see that everywhere you look around here so i think it's part of just the general history being mm. lost to make way for the new and the shiny that i think Absolutely, everybody yeah. sort of feels a bit of a about mm. i mean certainly you know the fruit and wool exchange as i say is you know when i first started going and wandering around the area with my camera i remember very well the the route i took and i ended up coming round by Spitalfields Market before I got to, to Dorset Street as was. And as I say, this was the very first time I went to the area. And so before, well, not that I went to the area, but I went to the area with this intention. Um, and so before I actually knew exactly where where the, the Dorset Street as was, was, if that makes sense. So I came in, I saw Brushfield Street before I realised that Dorset Street as such was, was just beyond it. And, uh, and the Fruit and Wood Exchange as soon as I saw that frontage onto on the Brushfield Street, I took a photo of it, and it was something that really, with before I even realised the sort of relative significance of it. I mean, obviously, you know, for anyone who isn't aware, listening, you know, we are talking about a building that was that was built 45 odd years after the murder. So I'm not talking about contemporary significance, but significance to the the history of the area. You you see that building, you realise and understand that frontage may be remaining in a sort of Crispin Street style. Um, but you see that that building and you are aware that it brings it home that, you know, wow, this really was a proper, you know, that, that fancy market there where they're selling, you know, organic scarves or whatever, it, you know, is, it was a real working market and a part of the trade of the area. And it it's it is, a, as you say, a significance to the area, you know, beyond beyond the murders, really. And what what concerns me a little is is. The, the rationale behind these things it's not so much that these things are going it's it's the thinking behind them i'm slightly concerned of the absolute faith that seems to be being placed in whoever's putting the most money into an area at the moment and the fact that if the the this investment banking company that are moving into the fruit and wool exchange whoever ends up owning the the one mitre square as they're calling it you know, if those people start going to Tower Hamlets Council in the future and saying, well, we think that these Ripper tours are, are you know, bad for the, the image of the area, I just worry that they might be taken seriously. Well, that's definitely something that would uh, end an in industry, but uh, maybe that's another thing when I get John Bennett on here. <laughs> Since there seems to be a bunch of things I'll be bringing him on for. And we can definitely put that one to him and, and, and ask about his opinion. Well, I, I'm certainly with, with Trevor there that, you know, so many times in historic cities, I'm, I make the case that, you know, if they were bombed by the Luftwaffe, what was left behind has had a pretty damn bash out by a lot of the local councils. And it is a tragedy because these are the touchstones of the past. These are the streets where people lived. They raised families in, in sometimes terrible conditions. But at least there should be some elements of it preserved and not not restored within an end of its life, allowed to be seen more or less as it was, you know. And if we, if that's all being wiped away, 
then you are simply they are simply destroying history. And I think yeah, your, yeah, your yeah. points there have been really very powerful, Trevor. Mm, absolutely. I mean, on, on a slightly more up, upbeat note about it, to finish, I suppose, it's what is strange is is for, for my generation, if you like, of, of, of people involved in the case, it's it's the first time we've seen this kind of change. And, and so, so maybe I'm being a little bit more affected by it than I should. But, you know, I've spent years looking at, you know, the whether it's Stuart Evans's photos of from the 60s and 70s, you know, some of Rob Clack's early photos of... of um, uh, Derwood Street, as it was in the whenever he started first started going around William Stewart's book, stuff like that. I'm thinking, wow, these people saw this place before it was changed, when there was still this there, when there was still that there, and and in a way, I suppose it, it's quite something to think that now I'm going to be on the other side of one of those. We're all going to be on the other side of another one of those changes. But but every step, as as Neil's saying, you know, every, every step that you go, yes, it's changed before and it's just changing again. But every step you go is just getting you that little bit further away from the original, from from a real sense of of the history. And I think that's that's what's the good thing about about tours, whether they're Jack the Ripper tours or they're ghost tours or or they're you know seen as sort of serious historical tours or, or whatever you know the, the 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 powerful thing about those is that you can take people around whether it's members of the public and tourists or you know schools or especially but you can take people around and you can stand them in a spot and there is something powerful about standing someone in a spot and saying here in that building over there in that street this happened, that happened, this person, as Neil says, this person lived their life in this road, they would have walked down there, they would have seen that church, they would have drunk in that pub. And you, you will never, once those things have gone, you will never get that back by showing people slides or, you know, Google Maps or whatever. You yeah. just can't do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Does anyone else have anything to say about John Bennett's um, lecture? Okay, and then I guess we'll move on. Other than just thinking, I hope sometime I can get John Bennett on this podcast to tell me about the strange case of James Limpard because now I'm really curious. I do believe he's actually um, he may he may be turning it into an article. So try and get in there before he does that, Ali. Oh, okay. Scoop the Ripperologist. They may take out a contract hit on me, and I've already had several of those. So <laughs> <laughs> might be taking my life in my hands. Okay, we then had a little coffee break, and afterwards we came back to Mr. Robert Anderson speaking about an inconvenient book, everything you wanted to know about the diary tests but were afraid to ask. Now, my main problem with this is after 10, 12 years on the boards, I don't think there's anything that anybody's been afraid to ask about the diary <laughs> or the diary test. But, you know, other than the slight inconsistency of that title, let's, let's, let's discuss Robert's um, lecture. Anyone? It was a bit sciencey, wasn't it? It, it was a bit sciencey, um, the diamine <laughs> ink analysis and everything. And a couple of times, you know, if you're not a diarist, if you're not, in, I, I was in that whole um, discussion and debate probably ten years ago when it was Melvin Harris and Kaz Morris going toe to toe and head to head and bared teeth and nail scratching and fur flying and it was intense and deep, which really I mean the title of this made me go afraid to ask um who showed fear in that I do not know because it was a really intense sort of conversation but um so I think for people who weren't really into the whole diary thing it it really was a bit over 
most people's heads, I would say, because, you know, the diamine ink and, and if you're not involved in that sort of thing, it could be very like, what is he talking about? Diamine ink? What's going on? So it's sort of, it presupposed a knowledge. I'm not entirely sure everybody there fully had. Um, can, can I, I was, I helped Robert with some of the research for, for his talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have got things which I might be able to help you out with, uh, even the sciencey things. I might be able to help you out. Go with. for it. Give us a break. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to hear. I'd rather hear first what people thought about how it came across, because really it was. I'll, I'll, I'll do a little anecdote first, which was on the thir- on on the uh, Tuesday before the, the conference. Uh, Robert and Katya Nida and I met in a pub in Whitechapel to look through. Um, kind of where he was at that point with his talk. Um, and by this time, he'd already agreed to give up half the talk to Robert Smith, um, who was bringing the diary, which no doubt we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and Robert Anderson, uh, on the Tuesday before the Saturday on which he was talking, had about something like three and a half hours or four hours of material. So it was never all wow. going to fit. It was never all going to fit in. Uh, and it was fit, Well, it, it, we sat there sort of... Um, you know, with the assistance of a few pints of beer, tried to hack through it to make something workable out of it. And I don't know exactly how successful we were. Um, so I'd kind of like to start with hearing other people's opinions, and then I'll come and I'll, I'll come back and help Melanie with the sciencey bit. Oh no, don't. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Honestly, Melanie, I've no. got it all written down. It no, 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 it's problem. fine, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm good for the science. Right. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you brought it up, Melanie. I'm going to do my uh, gas liquid chromatography lecture, whether you like it or not. Oh, oh lordy! Thanks, Melanie. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Melanie. Well, it, it's I'll not. Get my coat. <laughs> it's not so much that. It's just I think that for the okay, and and I and I I truly I know I'm going to have like nasty emails from Robert Anderson. I, I, I'm braced for them, but I don't. I think for a lot of people, and I apologize, Mark Ripper, because I know this is not. You're not one of them. I don't think the diary... It's sort of one of those non-issues. Like, I don't believe many people believe in it. Just they, they, it, It's sort of like a non-issue, a non-starter. And so to me, the entire... You can totally disprove the diamond ink, and you can toss that out in its entirety. And I just think it, it doesn't really stand on its own. Even, like, even if we say, okay, the tests were completely flawed. I'll, I'll grant you. Okay, I'm not even going to argue. We'll just we'll we'll lay it out as a an accepted given. The tests were entirely flawed. That doesn't it doesn't make a case for the book being genuine. And I think the main the main thing I would like to get into because I think it was hinted at, but mm. I don't think it was really expanded upon. And and I you know um, I do have hearing issues, so sometimes I miss things. So please feel free. You know, definitely enlighten me on what I may have missed here is the um where he was saying that he thinks he's proven the thing that Keith Skinner has discovered which is that the diary may have been stolen from Battle Creek's house along with the pocket watch by workers who had come to the house is it, it, and is that sort of what I was getting from it it was sort of he was a little bit all over the place with that but that seems to be what I glean from what he was saying was that there was workers hired to work on Battle Creek's house and there was a theft that occurred at that time 
which is how both the pocket watch and the book ended up out in the public at the same time, sort of coincidentally together. Am I, am I right? And that was his, his argument. I think think that's close. I think that's close. And I think that, you know, in Robert's defense, um, he, he was, uh, trying to infer what he believes. Keith knows. He doesn't, he doesn't have a hotline, Keith Skinner. Um, So he, he was trying to infer from what Keith did say, at the uh, Maybrick conference about four or five years ago, right? And and, what, and I did get he, that. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 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 using that as a starting point, and then extrapolating from that. Well, what does Keith mean by this? So I don't think there's anything there which is. Uh, Robert isn't saying now I know this, um, and and it's a fact. He's saying, well, I believe that that this is a reasonable interpretation of what Keith said at the time. My um, question would be, you've got plumbers. I've had plumbers and electricians in my house, and okay, if things get Pilford, I don't really think it's going to be an old musty book because I don't really see electricians and plumbers sitting down to page through a book. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how would this theft have come about? Like, that's not. We, we don't know. Steal the jewelry. <laughs> They're not going to go for it. Oh, look at this old scrapbook thing. We don't. We don't know. I mean, just to take, just to go back. I mean, to illustrate that, to go back to something which you said uh, a couple of minutes ago. Um, you can disprove all the ink tests and things like that. Uh, and it, it demonstrates that James Maybrick wasn't Jack the Ripper. Well, I don't think Robert's going that far either. I think he's saying you have to discount all the ink tests, but none of the ink tests show that the book was a recent forgery, you know, created between 1987 and 1992, for example. Um, what we, 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 there are lots of things about the diary which, which people just don't know. It, it doesn't quite go away in the way that uh, I think people believe it ought to, it's not the, you know, gratuitous forgery full of errors which it really ought to be if its provenance was the one which Mike Barrett claimed for it. And look, I, 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 I'm, I personally, I agree with you. It isn't going to tell us who Jack the Ripper is, but to know the provenance of that document, regardless, I think is still a very interesting question. Absolutely. All right, so that finishes up um, Robert Anderson's talk about the diary and moves us into our next lecture of note, which was a Mr. Neil story speaking on the Dracula secrets, Jack the Ripper, and the darkest sources of sources of Bram Stoker. Oh, it was rubbish, wasn't it, people? It was terrible. Yeah. It was a nightmare. I don't know how we ever got that. Well, obviously, Mr. Story is here with us, so we're just sort of pulling his leg. But I think he would be the best one to give a little brief summation of what his, his talk was about. Well, my talk doesn't try to solve the crime of Jack the Ripper. As we all know, the chances are we'll never do it. We certainly couldn't prove it in a court of law. But there is this it's a bit of a holy grail, I suppose, or, or literary grail, of linking Jack the Ripper and the creation of, of Dracula by Bram Stoker. And over the years, people like Richard Dolby have translated the Icelandic introduction, uh, the first foreign language, language edition of Dracula, that mentions Jack the Ripper and the climate of fear that, that Stoker drew on. We've also had Stoker's notes for Dracula. They've been very nicely published and annotated by Robert 18 Bysang and Elizabeth Miller, whose work has been extensive over the years and quite seminal in the research of Dracula. Uh, but really, I, I hope it's the first quite serious look at it from this side of the pond, 
and going to the places where Bram Stoker visited and exploring uh, his friendship, his very, very close friendship with Hall Kane, and drawing on these wonderful letters uh, which connect Hall Kane and Tumblety, and um, arguably it's one of the greatest collections of letters from a, 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 an 1880s Ripper suspect. Uh, it, it's a subject that's fascinated me for years. I'm, I wanted to take people on a, on a bit of a romp through Bram's backstory, and uh, I, I I hope people enjoyed it. I hope it set people thinking, and uh, I think there's more research to be done on it. Uh, I've tried to provide as many annotations in the book as possible to to show that the sources are not just coming from other people's books. They're coming from a lot of contemporary sources, and hopefully there's new light on on. on Dracula and Jack the Ripper. That's it. Does anybody have any questions for Mr. Story? Well, personally, I mean, we're, we're, I mean, your delivery was absolutely outstanding, Neil. I must say that it was very, very. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was very captivating, and um, it certainly had me on the edge of my seat. Um, it was like going through a journey, as it were, especially the relationship side um, with Hall Kane and Tumble T and uh, so on and so forth. Um, so it's, it's not a subject, I'll freely admit, it's not a subject that does bite, bite me as it, as it were. Um, however, by the end of it, I was certainly, certainly intrigued with it all and it was brilliant. I really enjoyed that talk. Thank you. I, ho- I hope to bring it alive and, you know, give it a bit of life. Put a bit of light on the subject because it's not just Jack the Ripper's influence in there. There are a lot of very dark sources that, that the Stoker drew on. There are real crimes that you, you can find in his works. Stoker loved codes. He loved riddles. And I suppose it's something in all of us, if we have an interest in Jack the Ripper, we like the enigma. We like the riddle. And I think maybe some of its appeal is it is unsolved. You know? I can't definitively find all of the secrets in, in, in Bram's book either. I don't think any of us ever will. But it's I just wanted to take that stroll through that story and explore it with with a wider audience and hopefully in the lecture and and, and in, in my book to share that enthusiasm for London in the 1880s that wonderful world of theatre uh, the world of Bram, Henry Irving Ellen Terry I've had the chance to meet yeah. the Stoker family I've had the chance to, to meet so many wonderful people who've been so very helpful It's it's been a journey I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed and I thought well God this I thought it was a very interesting talk. I've been interested in um, Dracula since I was a little kid. Really, I, I've always been fascinated by vampires. And um, recently, I actually studied a little bit about the history of vampire myths, which I think is also very interesting. And I'm sure you know about this stuff, Neil. But, uh, you know, if you look at the the old the older stories of vampires from the 18th century, which come from Serbia and places like that, are nothing mm. like, nothing at all like... Um, you know, modern vampires, they didn't suck blood. They weren't, you know, sophisticated. They weren't pale. They weren't thin. Uh, you know, they, they were these bloated, fat, red colored, uh, corpses basically that wandered around at night and they generally attacked people by laying on top of them or strangling them. They, they, they were said to kill livestock and things like that. I mean, they're nothing at all like, like Dracula, but, you know, I, I guess I was, I was curious, Neil, I'm sure you've researched this stuff, but, uh, you know, I was always 
interested in where exactly did those things come from. And I think that um, Stoker actually didn't really invent the concept of the vampire as this sort of sophisticated aristocrat. I think that came from somewhat earlier. Um, I'm thinking of a story featuring a character called Lord Ruthven, which oh, I haven't read. Oh, the Trento. Yes, absolutely. Some, I, I mean, I, ha I haven't read it, so... And there's Castle of the Trandor. Then you get the um, Varney the Vampire stories as well. Right. Between the two of those and one or two little tracks around the place, that's more or less where we get the notion of the, the gentleman vampire. In the earlier stories, of course, he's more of an 18th century aristocrat, whereas right. Stoker put him into this sort of more European aristocrat of the Victorian age in, in some right. ways, but, but also not. He was also... A throwback because he's, you know, he is immortal in some ways. He is, has been around for centuries. It's absolutely fascinating how Stoker created his vision of a vampire, of, of, of Dracula. I think a lot of it did come from his youth, and it did come from those folk stories that he heard around in Ireland. Uh, we don't want to get too heavy, heavily into those because I don't want to labour the point, but we explore a lot of that in the book. But I certainly certainly think the the Sligo cholera epidemic that his mother and his nurse both related in stories to Bram of these people that were thought to be dead but they 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 weren't and they under these horrible piles of corpses they came back to life if they were they weren't dead at all but they appeared to come to life because their their death had not been properly diagnosed <laughs> it, it, as you can imagine it Stoker was a, a very ill little boy and he grew up the first seven years of his life more or less confined to bed and his nurse used to carry him around the house. So he would have heard and absorbed so many stories and developed his own imagination as well. I think he's a most fascinating character. I really do. Right. That was a very good talk, I thought. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, you that's second or sort of fourth, that, definitely. You definitely have a very captivating way of speed where you're just sort of carried along on this sort of soothing oh. tide, and then you kind of wake up and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what just happened? Um, <laughs> it, you do have a very captivating speaking voice, so I would definitely encourage anybody who has the chance to go see Neil's story speak um, to take advantage of the opportunity. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> That's very kind. I, I, I hope eventually the, the, the invitation will come along. I'd love to come and see all you lovely folks in the Whitechapel Society and have a yarn with you. And uh, and and hopefully, uh, I think uh, wonderful Cobb Brothers would like to have me back and we'll do something else special for next year at, uh, at the Ripper Conference. I, I'd be delighted. I had a wonderful time. I really did. I was very new to the scene. And I, I've got to say, you know, the, the warmth that I felt, the welcome that I felt uh, as somebody new to that conference, somebody on, I'll, I'll never forget it. I, I'm not just saying it, it, it meant something to me. It meant an awful lot to me. And, and I'm very thankful to all those people that shared a drink with me into the wee small hours. Well, eventually, <laughs> we'll get to the so Saturday nice. night bar <laughs> story. <laughs> yes, so you're nice. beginning to sound like Trevor now, Neil. <laughs> 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 I've, I've become a genre of a, <laughs> a Trevor speech. Oh, the bar stories. Those will be coming up soon, chaps. Brace oh, yourself. Yes. But th those are definitely going on the uh, the hidden extras on the DVD. Those oh, no, we're not. putting those right out front. <laughs>
Well, speaking of Lushes and their bar drinking abilities into the wee hours of the morning, that actually brings us to our next speaker, who was, surprisingly enough, Trevor Bond on Writing Mary Kelly. Trevor, would you like to tell us a little bit about your, your uh, lecture? If you well, can, of course, remember <laughs> any of it. <laughs> well, being the head of the uh, the Ripperological Temperance Society, <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> no, I mean it was my, my talk was was quite a, a simple talk in a way, and what I tried to do was in a, in a conference where we were having you know nine speakers, I I was aware that we'd need quite a sort of broad range and I, and I think it worked I'm sure we've touched on this before I popped in but I thought the range worked really well actually with a, a few a couple of, sort of suspect um focused lectures and a couple of more um contexty things and I just thought you know I was never going to bring in as much new information as you know Robert I was aware of some of the the work that Robert Anderson as well as people like you know Mark who were helping him out um, we're, we're putting in and so I thought let's just look at a different way of looking at one of the most the in a way the most well-known and the most least known figures in the whole case um, and as I said in the talk you know we all know the few facts about Kelly and we all know that there aren't enough of them and we all know that the few we've got there's massive problems with um, the, the biggest problem of which is is called Joe Barnett you know but there's another way of looking at her and looking at the way that she's been depicted through the ages because this woman who we know practically nothing about, as I said, you know, she's the, if you want to use the term, she's the canonical victim we know the least about without a shadow of a doubt. And even if you widen it to the whole 11 Whitechapel murders in the file, you're only really looking at Alice McKenzie as anyone who could challenge her for that. Mm -hmm. So we know very little about her, and yet, for 124 years, she's been written about, she's been depicted on screen, she's been, you know, so th there, there is some degree of filling in the holes that's gone on, and when you actually look at the way she's been depicted over the, the years and the decades and century plus, that you realise that actually a lot of the elements of her character, as she's depicted, are not that widely different to each other where if everyone was just guessing you'd expect it but actually when you look at it there's almost a character like a pseudo mary kelly if you like there's a character of mary kelly that has been built up over and above the bare historical bones and that has been carried through and so i started off i sort of went in a sort of reverse chronology and started off with obviously from hell uh time-wise i couldn't bring in things like the 1988 miniseries and, and the final solution that i'd hoped to but looking at things like you know through barlow and what a couple of more obscure things like there was a film from 1997 um but barlow and what and then back to contemporary sources things like you know richard fox and the the history of the whitechapel murders and looking at the ways as i say that this this character that has almost become truth has built up that every new portrayal of kelly builds on things that have been written before that actually if you look there's no basis for it but it's just assumed almost or that the way things have been fleshed out there seems to be a general consensus about and and looking as say back at the contemporary sources that that were almost sort of reflections of the earliest word on the street but the ways in which some of that that rumor if you like which is all it was has actually fed into our understanding even now, 124 years later, that, that we can still see bits in the way we think of Kelly when you weigh that against the facts 
the way we think of her, we can still see elements that have followed through right from those earliest earliest writings. And, and then looking at some of the things that haven't stuck as well, like the, the rumours about uh, having a child at the time that, that doesn't seem to... Now, I'm not... And, and as I say, I wasn't particularly interested in saying this is why it's true or this is why it's not true, but more, you know, there are lots of things about Kelly that we can't say are true and they've stuck. Why hasn't that one stuck? And, and I think it's a bit too complicated to get into now, but if through the talk I hope I brought in, that if you look at the way she's she's portrayed, there's almost a certain almost a sort of chasteness or a sort of asexuality about it, a sort of pureness um, that I, I would argue had some impact on the fact that that child angle didn't come in. And I, I finished off sort of somewhat tangentially looking at, at some other sort of Victor- parallels around the era of the way other women were portrayed um, and looking at uh, Fontaine in, in Les Miserables, the, the book and the, and the play, and also the way some of the victims of Burke and Hare were looked at compared to the way some of the other victims, because... There's a clear, you know, I don't think any of us need me to say that, you know, there's a clear difference in the way that Kelly is often looked at when people talk about the case and the way the other victims are looked at. And, um, of course, Martin Fido went on to sort of make reference to, because he's written on the, the resurrectionists, as they were called, so he, he made reference to that the next day, which was which is quite nice to know he was listening. Um, and I, I was talking after with a few people, and I was talking to, to John Reese after, and he made the point that, there's a game, sort of phone app game, that was launched a couple of months ago, which I did know about, but I'd never sort of looked into, called, um, I see the Hunt the Ripper or Track the Ripper. Um, I think there's some of the definitive story people were, were involved with it. And he said to me afterwards, he said, you realise that in that game, the aim of the game, the happy ending, if you like, the thing you are aiming towards, is to save Mary Kelly from being killed. And when you think about it, you look at a lot of the, the film representations, you look at From Hell and others... And actually, when you think about it, that often is the way it works. And I wish he'd said that to me before and I could have brought it in because it suddenly got me thinking that actually, you know, look at From Hell just as the most significant example for a generation, you know, of the the case in the popular imagination. And it's a happy ending because Kelly doesn't get killed. The others have still been murdered horribly, but they almost don't count as much as her. And one of the, the parallels that I didn't get a chance to bring in at the end was... I've always thought that the way Kelly is portrayed in a lot of popular media, if it reminds me of anything as far as modern storytelling goes, it's probably things like Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver or even Pretty Woman. It's that sense of there's always the male investigating character in things like From Hell, the, the 1997 film that I alluded to, who, you know, Kelly is, is the, the one, the prostitute to be saved from herself um, and more important than the others in some way. And, and I just thought, you know, without getting into the rights and wrongs of that, the, just a way of a look at the way that that myth has built up could be quite interesting. Well, I do think, I, I think there's a point to be made there that we do know quite a bit about not a whole lot, but about the lives, the previous lives of the other, for lack of a better term, McNaughton Five or the Canonical Five, however you wish to refer to them. And there's not a great deal of admiration necessarily for some of the choices that they made in their lives. But with Kelly, you do have this sort of blank slate where, and, and you did make this point in your speech, which I thought was good, where we have a blank slate murderer and a blank slate victim, a kind of, uh, she could be that typical victim who, and please do not take my words wrong here, but she's quote unquote worthy of saving where, I, and people can project that onto her because we don't know anything about her. So you can, there's this whole like 
Russian push to sort of elevate the victims into being quote unquote better than they were. You know, these, these women who we're going to ignore all their flaws. We're going to ignore all the things that make them real because it's sort of inconvenient to our agenda. But with Mary Kelly, she is a blank slate. You can make Absolutely. her into Absolutely. that perfect innocent victim and sort of hold her up as the shining beacon because we don't know any of the reality of her, the warts and the, the bad things and the sort of uh, real characteristics about her that make her a real person as opposed to just this sort of idealized perfect victim, if, if you guys know what I'm trying to say there. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was asked after one of the, the questions afterwards, and it was, it was a very good question, but I was asked afterwards whether I thought that perhaps the mythology that had built up around Kelly was was more just purely to do with the fact that she was the last victim, if, you know, Mandalorian 5, Canonical 5, etc. And I had to say that, no, I don't think that is the case, because, you know, had there not, had there not been a, a, a fifth canonical McNaughton, whatever you want to call it, victim, had Eddowes been the last accepted victim, would Eddowes have ended up being held up in the same regard and I really don't think she would because exactly as Ali's saying when you try people are trying to romanticize a victim you can't do that to Eddowes to the same extent because as I said in uh, in York you've got to contend with the fact that you know she was such a pain to her daughter that her daughter had moved house and not told her <laughs> and, yeah, you, know, you, you have we, real women as opposed to fantasy absolutely women. yeah Absolutely, and you know, yeah, and that's it. I'm not making any sort of value judgments on on her or on you know Chapman, uh, Polly Nichols stealing or whatever. I'm you know, who knows what any of us would do in those kind of circumstances. But you've got to accept those facts, and you've got to have that discussion with yourself with any of the other victims. Whereas with Kelly, as you say, you can kind of think, oh, I you know, wasn't she wonderful? And and it's it's okay. a strange sense in the way that she's used to elevate her, but by doing that, you kind of put down the others. Yeah, again, that goes back to the knowledge of the victims, doesn't it? It's what you alluded to right at the beginning of this section. It's, it's, we, we know so little about Kelly compared to Eddowes. We know everything, not everything, but we know when, Ke uh, sorry, when Eddowes, Eddowes, I'm referring to, when Eddowes was born, you know, when she went to school, her trouble with her family life, going back to Birmingham, coming back to London, uh, troubles with their daughters and the, their relationship. We know so much about Eddowes. We know next to nothing, as you say, about Kelly. So we kind of go into that, um, whether it be mythical or, or whatever you want to phrase it, um, uh, persona or, or knowledge of her. You know what I mean? Well, I found it really interesting because yeah. um, I've been working on a novel about Mary Kelly for the last five years and I actually found that really interesting because um, I've actually tried really hard not to make her like all perfect and romantic and like this sort of pretty woman type thing anyway but I do find it kind of a bit odd the whole sort of um, having to rescue her element and stuff like that I think I've made her actually quite disagreeable in my book though so but then that's mm. I'd like being contrary <laughs> <laughs> well I mean and again and I think that's better than than the 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 romanticizing honestly because uh, this uh, and again i hate to be the female feminazi person here but this group is largely run by men and men have a very different you know means of looking at this i mean we have we have men on the boards who are trying to say oh well elizabeth stride was just out on a date she wasn't prostituting herself she was waiting for a date oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's kind of like, and all the women are like, are you insane? What are you, that's just, that, no. You know, so there, there is this sort of, um, I don't know, there, there, there's a, like a justification. Like, we have to make them better than they were so that, so that we can feel bad about them dying. Whereas I'm like, they're murder victims. It doesn't really matter who they were or what they did or they're still murder victims. They don't have to be better than they were to have not deserved that fate. No, absolutely. I think they, even however horrible they were, they still didn't deserve it. Exactly. The whole sort of, oh, you know, trying to find goodness and stuff in them makes me feel a bit uneasy, actually, because it starts to go into that sort of, um, you know, innocent victim Mm. and um, someone who deserved it territory, which... Yes, absolutely, yeah. Then that's what I mean. You elevate one, you by by definition, you know, set her up in in opposition to another, and it's that exactly, yeah. If you buy into that, that thinking of oh she was yeah as you say she she was is worthy of pity someone else isn't you know yeah it's not fair i just feel sorry for annie chapman she gets such a bad press it's not you know maybe i should write about her instead you know and try and give her a bit of glamour <laughs> no maybe not well she at least someone's written a song about her a descendant of her so here i'll take this oh, time oh. to plug the town pants and their song dark annie i believe um they're an Irish Canadian band, so listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> going, going back to your talk, Trevor, I don't know if you, you wish to mess. I didn't put it in the article in my report after the conference, but uh, as soon as you finished, John Reese turned around to me and says, He looked square in he went, in, in, in that Welsh accent, it's that wonderful Welsh accent, he went, He did a lot better than he did last time. So <laughs> take that away with you. <laughs> Actually, Trevor, you haven't said what happened. What happened in the kind of making of the speech? I don't know whether you want to tell, uh, you know, the global listening audience <laughs> circumstances of the creation of the speech. Well, <laughs> well, that oh, yeah. was that was that was John Reese's fault as well. Um, <laughs> and A lot he, of things it turned out to be his fault, actually. Well, they did. It's true. He's quite convenient, but uh, he, he, I think he enjoyed the, the mention really because he is he is still quite proud of the fact that he got mentioned in a he got named in a conference speech as the errant Welshman. But uh, but yes, we, my initial idea, my initial sort of concept for the speech around which I'd written the whole script was that it was going to be a kind of a multimedia. Um, talk really and I was going to show clips from from various things to to help to break it up and to illustrate points John was supposed to be helping me get that sort of technically together on the night before because it was the first time we'd had to sit down together and do it and it, it didn't happen it just didn't happen I mean there was there was a wonderful moment I didn't put it mention this bit in the talk this isn't what Mark's alluding to but uh, there was a wonderful moment about half past nine on the Friday night when we had one laptop on playing uh, a section from, I think it was from the From Hell sec, uh, intro. So we had a laptop playing From Hell while Adam Wood is standing there with his iPad trying to film the screen of the laptop playing From Hell <laughs> to insert that as a file on the PowerPoint presentation. It was like the worst pirate DVD you've ever seen. It was terrible. So the, the clips didn't happen. I managed to put one in at the beginning because that's technically simpler to do like some other people did but uh, but I had to exclude the there was a, a clip from the 1997 film The Ripper there was a clip from Barlow and Watt there's a clip from In Search of that I wanted to include so yeah of course suddenly I had to, to rejig the script a bit to to make those points without the visual cues and also to fill the space that they'd 
that the, the clips would have taken up. So, yeah, I, I planned on having an early night on the Friday uh, to, to do that, but ended up staying up till about half 12 or something. So I went back up to my room and, uh, and realised that I'd had a couple of drinks accidentally and uh, <laughs> thought, well, if I have a bath, that'll, that'll sober me up and then I can sit up and, and finish rejigging my script. And you know what? I'll multitask while I'm in the bath. I'll see what bo- I brought a few books with me. I'll see what books I've got that I haven't included. I'll have a bath and to sober me up and a cup of coffee. And I'll read a book and make some notes and then I can type that up. It didn't really work because 10 minutes later, <laughs> <laughs> I woke up in the bath with a very soggy copy of The Final Solution. So, <laughs> so that, that, that was the story that I included in the talk that Mark obviously enjoyed. We also now know that The Final Solution is not waterproof, which was a scientific <laughs> test, which nobody had done to that point. I've told, I've told Robert about my, uh, my scientific methods and I'm waiting for a critique of them. I should think so. That'll be 2013 sorted then. That moves us along to the final talk of Saturday evening, which was Trevor Marriott. Missing organs and the clue at Goulston Street. Anybody? Oh, that was just so horrible. I actually ended up spend, um, spending that whole talk pretty much playing um, Angry Birds, so I didn't look at the screen when he was doing all those photos and tweeting angrily about it, going, I'm never going to eat yellow food again. <laughs> I, I, I came on to this tonight with every intention of being diplomatic, but M- Melanie's just set the tone, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, maybe we should... Um, if we take Trevor's talk... Um, bit by bit then maybe we might get something out of this discussion which doesn't end with us all in a court somewhere (laughs) you're you're not you're not not referring to uh what you're saying about taking it bit by bit mark you're not referring to the uh the blackadder quote are you with on baldrick's poetry where it says it started badly the middle wasn't very good and the less said about the end the better (laughs) well um well that's you in court trevor um Maybe we. I, I missed the first two minutes, but I suspect, uh, without being unkind to Trevor, I didn't really miss very much in those two minutes. And the first bit which I heard him say was where he uh, presented to uh, the assembled uh, group of uh, informed ripperologists that they had all been reading the Gorston Street Graffito in uh, one particular way, but that he had another way which he felt he could recommend, which was to uh, take the sort of J word, which is traditionally read as Jews, and read it instead as jurors, that is, men who serve on a jury. Um, I kept trying to work out what accent you would have to have um, to make that happen, though, because it, it just doesn't, does it? It doesn't for me. Um, in particular, it's really Cockney Jewers. I think, I mean, I was, I, was be, I was being a bit facetious there, but I will say, you know, I'm, not, I'm sure it won't come as any surprise to Trevor Marriott to know that in private I'm probably a little bit critical of, of his talk more than I'm going to be now. But in public, you know, as someone else who spoke, I will say, you know, Anyone who gets up and talks and presents something deserves a certain amount of respect for that. And I give him that. I was being facetious. But what, for me, more than anything, if I am going to be honest about it, it was a missed... I felt it was... If, it was any, if Trevor Marriott's talk was anything, it was a missed opportunity. You know, because here's a man who has basically antagonised, rightly or wrongly, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying that because he 
tends to not care. You know, has antagonised most of the field over the years, has been banned from the various boards on various occasions for varying periods of time, and is seen as being very controversial and is someone who I'm sure he's aware a lot of people just kind of gloss over. And here he was being given the opportunity of a platform to speak at a conference with a lot of people who probably, if he put something up on the boards, a lot of the people there probably wouldn't even bother to open the thread. But he had them in the room and for 45 or so minutes he had their attention. And I just think that was such a, a golden opportunity for someone who had promised that he had new things to present. And I just felt, as I say, all respect for him to getting up there, but I just felt it was a bit of a missed opportunity because I don't think anyone really left it feeling differently about his theories to they did before. I think that if... I think that must be absolutely right what you say, that it must have been a missed opportunity. Um, I also think that there's something about Trevor's approach to the case, which is which is uh, deliberately and consciously controversial. He knows that he's going to um, take issue with what he considers uh, accepted facts among the field. A lot of these accepted facts don't seem to be accepted very widely, actually, or very universally, at least. So there is that, you know, he is, he's, he's, his starting point is that there's going to be that sort of tension, I suppose, between his interpretation and other people's interpretation. So to fail to sort of substantiate that in as full a way as 45 minutes would have allowed does seem to me like a missed opportunity. Um, I think there's also something about Trevor which, uh, interestingly enough, or Trevor's talk, which interestingly enough contrasted with your talk, Trevor B., uh, which was that when you look at the sort of reinterpretation of Mary Kelly over the years by various people who have presented to her fictionally, what you're really doing there is you're, you're sort of thinking about uh, in a sort of almost postmodern way or post-structuralist way about the importance of the reader in creating these characters, where they're not there in the text, but it's the reader's uh, response to the text which creates the uh, character in and of itself. And I think Trevor takes Trevor Marriott takes the same approach to history, this you know, a postmodern or post-structuralist approach to history, which is interpretation is everything and there are no facts anymore. And I actually think that's probably wrong. Um, and I think I don't think there's many people working in history today, even in post-structuralist or post-modern history, who would say that was correct, that there were no facts anymore. It's just down to interpretation. Um, so I think that gives Trevor... I think Trevor needs to understand that slightly better, in my view, that the, the whole philosophical aspect of what is history, what are we allowed to accept, and what must we challenge? Um, because some of those facts are there, I, I think. You don't have to accept or actually disagree with everything uh it, there may be a more balanced uh position to come to and i think he's probably sort of working along that road now without having got perhaps all the way there well and i i want to say something um insofar as missed opportunities and this sort of goes to the organization of the conference as well um my one major criticism is I am American. I did pay quite a lot of money for a plane ticket, flew across the Atlantic in what I term a tin coffin, and traveled quite a bit. And I did not go to that conference to see Trevor Marriott. I went because when I signed up for my ticket, I was told that uh, Stuart Evans and Donald Rumbelow was go- were both going to be speaking at the conference. And with all greatest of respect to everybody else who was there um, as somebody, you know, putting out quite a bit of money on plane tickets and travel and time and whatever. That's really who I was going to see was Stuart Evans and 
Donald Rumbelow, because then I had heard also through the grapevine, not realizing the conflict that had arisen, that Martin Fido was also going to be there. And I thought, oh my God, Stuart Evans, Donald Rumbelow, Martin Fido, all at one conference. This is going to be the most legendary conference, to quote um, How I Met Your Mother, legendary <laughs> conference in the history of the world. I have got to be at this conference. Um, so I checked the website, and it was Stuart Evans and Donald put my money down, and then I sort of learned, <laughs> you know, it was like posted later, and suddenly, you know, Stuart and Donald aren't there, and it was because, from what I understand, that it was sort of set up like a mud wrestling cage match between Stuart Evans, Donald Rumbelow, <laughs> and, and Trevor Marriott. Which, that would be worth seeing. We, we would all fly across the Atlantic to see yeah. that, Alex. <laughs> Absolutely, but that completely neglects the fact that Stuart Evans and Donald Rumbelow are never going to agree in a million years to any such sort of, of debacle. They're just not going to stoop to that kind of thing. So, you know, and, and when I found out like how this whole thing came about, I really was disappointed because I do believe that that wasted opportunity. There was a truly wasted opportunity to have, you know. Uh, well, Ali, Ali, I spoke to one of Stuart or Don. I probably won't say which one. Um, and the person I spoke to said that there was that was there was no such thing. They pulled out um, of their own volition. Okay, that's that's. I don't fine. know. That's, you know, that, I mean, who knows? But I just, it, it sort of seemed like, you know, they were advertised, they were all going to be there, and then it, it sort of seemed like, what happened? And uh, so I was sort of disappointed on that, because again, if we're talking about reasons to uh, missed opportunities and missed things, and, and, and I was waiting. Trevor Marriott made this great thing on the boards about the knockout, unbelievable, knock your socks off, you'll all have yeah. your jaws dropped. Evidence yeah. I'm going to present, and I'm sitting there going, and when's I mean, it Trevor, Tre yeah. Trevor continues to to present um, his alternative interpretation of why the apron turned up in Gorson Street as it was used by a dose um, <laughs> as, as an emergency oh, sanitary device. Um, which Ali, really, Ali, shall we go there? No. no, 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 no. I mean, I think the interesting, the only, the only thing I would say about that is that Trevor has been um, has been telling. Uh, people that now for six years um, he was speaking to the Whitechapel Society about exactly the same thing in June 2006 um, and I suppose to be fair to him I must put in sort of bold and capital letters that this is my interpretation this is not um, this is not what I'm saying the facts are this is only an interpretation but he has had six years of people telling him that they don't consider that interpretation very probable but it hasn't changed his his opinion on it. So uh, maybe that's worth recording as uh, one of the outcomes of Trevor's talk. Well, and it just, as a female, A, it makes just no bloody sense what, literally, excuse the pun, but it makes no sense whatsoever for that interpretation. And also at the thing, he said, oh, well, he the, the Ripper never would have used the apron because the apron would have been folded back up against the body with the rest of the clothes covering it, which is just completely contrary to the laws of being a female and hiking up your skirts. If she's laying down on the ground and you push her skirts up, the apron is not going to end up neatly folded up against her chest with all of her other clothing covering it like he was trying to say so that the, the ripper couldn't have gotten to it. When you push someone's, I don't want to say the man's never shoved a woman's skirt up in the dark, but the, the, the top layer ends up on top, you know? That's just, that's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It, it, I, oh, and it 
Court number one this afternoon. Yeah. This is going I said water. I don't want to say that. I am not saying that. I'm just saying go put some on the scale block. <laughs> go put some skirts on, lay down and hike them up and see your top layer well, when, ends up. Well, when we finish with this podcast, Ali, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I just I couldn't think of a better way to phrase that. It just it doesn't happen where your top layer ends up nicely folded, especially not your inner hurt. When you consider any kind of activity happening in the dark with a woman's skirts being shoved up, it just doesn't end up all nice and neatly folded back. Well, there, is, there obviously is scientific experimentation to be done there as well. Um, <laughs> You'll get the experts into it. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to see I'll ask, I'll Robert. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so interesting. Silence. Interestingly, the other, the other, I think the other uh, side of that is, is that I don't think it's plausible on the basis that Catherine O'Day wasn't really likely to be menstruating at the time. Uh, Very true. To, going to her age, um, emaciation, yes. malnutrition, alcoholism, all and all of those things. I mean, even Barbie doesn't menstruate, and not only because she's a plastic doll, it's because her um, her body fat is so low that the, 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 the body um, shuts down the reproductive functions below about 17% body fat, I think. So that I, I personally have that particular problem uh, with Trevor's talk. Now, Trevor knows, obviously, forensic pathologists and people like that, um, because he went on to show his sequence of slides of people doing um, autopsies and uh, hysterectomies from live donors. So I, I would actually encourage Trevor to ask his friends in the medical profession how likely they think it is that Catherine Eddowes was, um, was menstruating at the time, because that's not the question he seems to ask them. He asks them questions about removal of organs, but he really could ask them about the menstruation as well. That's my view. All right. Well, any other additions we want to add to this? Um, no, I mean, as I say, as I sort of quickly alluded to there, you know, myself and, and you, Ali, were, were discussing the other week about some of the, and, and again, I'm, I'm trying not to go for awful um, puns here, but the, the sort of ins and outs of this situation. And uh, and I know we, we came, I'm, I'm not going to go into it on the podcast, but I know we, we came to the conclusion that, uh, that the, the stains were not indicative of, of any kind of, the use that was that, yeah. was that was practical in the way he was indicating. Yeah. Um, just come back to what, what you were let saying. Me, hold on one second. Let me, let me, let me. I do believe that needs a little bit of expansion before you go on. But if if if, if the rag were being used in the method that Trevor described, the staining also would not have been the way he was describing it, due to the fact of how it would have had to have been used to have been effective for that purpose. You weren't going to get just a couple of smears either in the way it would have had to have been employed considering she did not have under drawers or stays. How she would have had to have employed that device would not have resulted it always, in... It always implies that it's a towel situation but logistically it couldn't have been. Exactly. I think if I remember rightly in his first book Trevor says speculates that the apron was used for the purpose he speculates it was used for uh, in between 
uh, being released from Bishopsgate Police Station and uh, obviously the yes. thing being found. Um, so I don't know whether he... I, I can't remember what he said about that or whether he sticks to the fact that she could have been wearing it for up to 44 minutes, I suppose, um, or, or whatever the case is. Um, how, I don't know precisely how much heavy staining one would expect in, in, in less than an hour, um, and maybe he believes now that she dropped it earlier during uh, before her arrest. I, I don't know. Okay. But, um, Children, Any... turn off this podcast because yeah. this will delve into some um, direct <laughs> speaking. Considering she had no underdrawers or stays, in order for it to have been employed in that device, it would have had to have been inserted. Yeah. It would not have just been sort of folded up against her personages. So, considering it would have had to have been inserted, you were not going to have just sort of a light spotting kind of a deal and if it was only light spotting she wouldn't have necessarily needed it for that purpose in the first place as any female who has sort of been in a similar situation could probably i'm not i'm not not melanie tell us what you think (laughs) yeah no i concur no definitely anyway if it was spotting it she wouldn't have needed something anyway because that happens when you Anyway, never mind. (laughs) And and this, children, is why you don't start reading books about Jack the Ripper, because these are the conversations you end up having. Yes. So, moving on, shall we? I'm really ready for a change of subject here. Just to to briefly come back, not to to any any conversations of any sanitary context, um, but to come back to what Ali was saying about the, the change of speakers for the conference... When Ali mentioned this to me the other day and knowing we'd be talking about it, I, I was sort of thinking about my, my own sort of experience of it and, and, and I actually tried going back to check something and I couldn't find any corroboration on it. Can anyone assure me that I'm not going senile? Was there at some point someone listed who was supposed to be talking on Druid? Or did I completely imagine that? I'm sure there was and that was the one I was disappointed, wasn't there? <laughs> I can't remember who it was though. I, I can't remember. No, I think you imagined it. Oh, there we are. Well, the conference in my head would have Had been. Drew it. It would have been a great conference. <laughs> <laughs> that imaginary conference. And but in I head? thought it went really well, and I, I think you know I've, I've got to say in, and I'm not arguing at all. I've just you know I've I've got to put my point across as Ali has put her point across you know I've, I've got to say that I can completely see where Ali's coming from and I can only speak as someone who didn't have to fly from Florida but I thought it was a brilliant conference but I, I did obviously I was aware of the, the Don and Stuart situation and I was a little bit nervous the whole way through that had it not gone as well as I think it did that that may have been a problem but actually, I think the major- certainly the majority of, of British people that I spoke to that hadn't had that, that you know, journey and extra expense certainly felt that with or without them, it, it, it was a very good conference and well worth going to. And I was really pleased for the organisers that they'd managed to pull that off because, as I say, if it had been slightly less successful, I, I think they, it, the Don and Stuart thing could have been an issue. I'm not saying that had Don and Stuart been there, it wouldn't have been 100 times better because, of course, it would. Um, and eh, you're just plugging for a spot next conference. I have told every. I, I'm doing an Adam Wood style retirement. I am not. <laughs> I am. I'm a delegate next time, guaranteed. 
disgust. <laughs> okay, at this time, if you guys don't mind, I would like to skip ahead a couple of lectures because we do um, have Rob House back with us for a moment, and I would like to have him speak about his lecture before he has to pop off again. So we're going to skip a couple of speakers and go directly to Rob House's Aaron Kosminski, Scotland Yard's suspect. Rob, would you like to tell us what your um, speech was about? Basically, uh, half of my talk was on some new information that had been discovered, not by myself, but by uh, really a woman named Pat Marshall, uh, who was working with Chris Phillips, really. Chris, Chris tracked her down because she was a descendant of the detective Her uh, Henry Cox, who was one of the guys who was um, conducting surveillance on a suspect who I personally believe may well have been Aaron Kosminski. It's certainly not known. In any case, um, Mrs. Marshall, I think, was very interested to find that she had this connection, and so she started doing some research on her own, and she came up with some very interesting new discoveries on Aaron Kosminski. So it was great for me to be able to sort of reveal this information before it came out in Ripperologist, which it did. Um, and so the, in a nutshell, the, there were three new revelations. One was the identity of Jacob, Jacob Cohen, who was a man who testified as to Aaron Kosminski's insanity. Um, and turns out that, you know, it was never known who Jacob Cohen was. Turns out he was Aaron Kosminski's cousin, I believe twice removed. He was the son of Aaron Kosminski's first cousin, effectively. And Jacob Cohen's sister was the wife of Wolf Abrams, who was Aaron Kosminski's brother. Uh, so, you know, it's known that Wolf Abrams and Jacob Cohen were in uh, a business together. They were, they were running a tailor shop. So, you know, this is Wolf's wife's brother, basically. And the conjecture is that he would have given the financial support to start that business probably and not have been involved in the day-to-day -day running of the business because he lived in Manchester. Uh, there was another thing that she, there was some more genealogical information she discovered about one, another one of Aaron Kosminski's sisters. And I didn't actually talk about that, but her name was Helen Singer. Uh, she was, she was in London up till I think 1880, uh, I want to say 1885. And then she went to Boston uh, I decided not to talk about that because I thought it doesn't really tell us too much. And, uh, you know, most people would start to glaze over when I'm starting to talk about genealogy. Uh, so the and then the other part was um, the address where Wolf Abrams was living at the time of the murders, which I think is very important because I've always assumed that Aaron Kosminski was pr most likely living with Wolf Abrams at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. So his address at the time was Providence Street, which is one street over from Burner Street. So it's very close to the Stride murder site. And uh, Chris and I actually walked over there um, a couple days after the conference. And, you know, it's even closer, really, than it looks on those old maps, because I think that the streets were really so thin that you look at it on those old maps and they look like these long streets, but it was really, you know, his house would have been so close to the Stride murder site. Uh, there's also been some interesting discussion on the message boards about that uh, that area was referred to as Tiger Tiger Bay, although I think this is back in the 1870s. Uh, but, you know, it's, it seems like it was a, a brothel district, really, uh, that serviced sailors coming up from the docks. So, um, you know, I, I still think that there's a lot of research that could be done along those lines. Uh, the, the other thing was that another one of Wolf Abrams' addresses was discovered, and it was, and it was literally um, 
right next door to the IWEC. Uh, Wolf Abrams lived at, I believe it was 38 Burner Street. So, you know, again, this is probably Aaron Kosminski's address in 1882, and it was literally next door to the murder site of the Stride murder. Um, and the rest of my talk, I discussed schizophrenic serial killers because, you know, obviously Aaron Kosminski was schizophrenic. So um, I looked at people like Richard Chase, Herbert Mullen, uh, Tsuotomo Miyazaki, Haddon Clark, and, you know, a whole list of other people. And, you know, the more I looked at schizophrenic serial killers, you start to see these characteristics of the murders that are similar to the Ripper murders. Um, specifically, there's a lot of post-mortem mutilation, uh, disembowelment, removal of organs, and cannibalism frequently. So, um, so yeah, I just, I just went through this list, talked about some of those, and then um, that was really it. I, I guess I, at the end I showed some photographs of patients from Colney Hatch Asylum, which... You know, I just really found that week. I went over to the Welcome Library and they had this uh, album from Colney Hatch that was pretty gr grotesque, really, showing these patients. And, uh, yeah, that was about it. Okay. Does anybody have anything that they'd like to ask Rob at this time or any comments they'd like to make on his? I really like that um, I talked to Rob afterwards and um, about his... He was talking about um, Robert Napper. And, right. Uh, he didn't mention um, that he murdered one, the, ch the child of one of his victims. And I was like, well, why didn't you do that? And he said, because I thought it would be depressing. And he just right. was talking about chopping bits off each other, eating bits off each other, retrieving organs, skinning, live. But apparently even we have our limits of <laughs> what we find particularly melancholy. So I thought that was quite nice, but also quite funny too. It was something about it. I just didn't feel like I wanted to mention it. You know, I mean, it is so depressing really you know he he murders this woman and then he goes into the next room and kills her infant son and then he comes back into the room to mutilate the woman extensively you know it's just uh, yeah i do find it interesting you going through the list of schizophrenic killers because um it, it is true that the fact that you know aaron is widely seen as this gutter eating insane completely unkempt person would have been incapable of uh, walking up to one of these women, approaching them, and sort of bringing them by verbal ability off into the dark. They wouldn't have gone off with those people. Um, but what that doesn't sort of rule out is maybe him just sort of ambushing them or some other sort of thing like most schizophrenic killers do. So um, it's not so much that schizophrenia would rule him out, but I think it would have to lead into an examination of other methods of stalking and and killing these women because i don't think anyone would think that necessarily those schizophrenic killers they don't go up and charm their victims into going off with them per se yeah i mean uh you know i think that there's a there's a bit of a conception that jack the ripper was this suave sophisticated guy like you like you said charmed his victims to go off into a corner or something and you know i don't necessarily think that that's the case um although you know I, I i raised this exact question when i was talking to roy hazelwood about it and he said to me in his southern accent he said well he said you got to remember uh all this person would have to do is go up and say i'll give you a shilling for a blowjob and they go off with him and you know that's a that's effectively pretty true i don't think that these 
prostitutes were very, you know, discriminating in terms of who they would go off with, really. You know, they were very desperate. And, uh, you know, the other thing is that there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of a concept about what a schizophrenic person would act like. And I don't necessarily think that he's going to be, you know, babbling and crazy and completely incoherent. Um, you know, this is especially true if he was a paranoid schizophrenic, because from what I have read, uh, pe- people with paranoid schizophrenia tend to retain much more of their uh, mental facilities, I guess I would say. And they're able to appear somewhat normal uh, as compared to someone who's, a, you know, I guess so you would call a disorganized schizophrenic who's kind of rambling. But, you know, I mean, we, we really don't know what Kosminski was like in 1888. So you know, he may not have seemed crazy to the people he talked to. It's entirely possible. I mean, some of the people on the list that I that I discussed were, you know, they were florid, schizophrenic, insane people. But they, when when people talked to them, they said they seemed normal. They could carry on a conversation, you know. So I think that there's sort of a, a prejudiced idea about what yeah. schizophrenics are like, and I don't think that that's true across the board. I think that there's a wide variety of um, sort of symptoms and severity in schizophrenics and it's and also must, a, a go ahead i was going to say there must be a a different um rate of deterioration um from one from one patient to another kosminski was in court for the dog incident sometime after the murders and represented himself reasonably well did he not he, he at least responded to questions that were asked of him yeah i mean i don't i don't, I don't think i would say he was uh he wasn't very eloquent, but uh, no. I mean, he certainly was able to stand up in front of court and respond. And you know, I mean, as you he say, wasn't babbling. He wasn't. He no. he wasn't obviously sort of um, psychotic or anything like that at that stage. So you might be thinking about um, someone who was deteriorating by 1888, but not yet full blown schizophrenic, needing needing to be sort of um, put away in an asylum. I don't right. think the court would have proceeded with the with the hearing. No right for, for a dog uh, for offensive was it, no. uh, dog not having a muzzle. Um, I don't think they would have would have continued with it if that was the case that he was this babbling um, idiotic shambling mess of a man. Right. Yeah, I mean schizophrenia is a degenerative disease, so it's going to get worse. Uh, and, and I think it also kind of comes in waves. You know, it's, it's really difficult to say. Uh, what Kosminski would have been like in 1888, in my opinion. You know, obviously yeah. later he was he was worse. In, in Colney Hatch, you get the sense that he was sort of manic and, you know, a bit aggressive. Um, yeah, but, by, but you don't know what, what he's been through to get to no. that stage after, you know what I mean, in, in Colney Hatch itself. Right. Uh, Rob, can I just ask, um, you mentioned about uh, Kosminski living in the Burner Street area uh, around the time of this, well, 1888. Um, have you got any direct evidence of that, or is it just something that you, you've kind of, it's a hunch, as it were, for the want of a better word? Uh, well, no, there's there's direct evidence that Kosminski's brother, Wolf Abrams, was living at Providence Street yeah, in, yeah. in 1888. I, you know... Um, there, but but has living... he lived with? Sorry, did he live with his brother before, previously, at other addresses? That's kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, there's no, there's no evidence at all about where Aaron Kosminski lived in the eight, 
in the 1880s, except for that his address is recorded on his two admissions to Myland Workhouse. Uh, okay. So this would have been in 1890 and 1891, at which, uh, which time he's uh, living with his brother Wolf on one occasion. He's living with his sister on the other occasion. So, yeah. you know, it seems clear that he was living with his siblings. Yeah. Uh, which one specifically he was living with at which time is not known. But I have, you know, I generally assume that Wolf is the likeliest candidate for the person that he was living with most frequently. But so, it is a trait trait that he was living with his siblings. What's at that? Some stage. It is a trait that he lived with his siblings at some stage. It right. Wasn't, you know what I mean? So, so they did take him in. They were living together as a family at some stage. So it would stand to reason. Um, that he, he possibly highly likely was living in Providence Street as well with with one uh, with his brother. Right. I mean, you know, if we assume he's living with his siblings, he's either in Providence Street or he's in Greenfield Street, and those are you know kind of on the opposite side of the Stratford site from each other. Um, you know, I think he quite possibly was living with different siblings at different times. He may have you know gone back and forth between their residences, but you know, I think in my opinion, Wolf Abrams is the most likely person that he would have lived with, generally speaking, because Wolf is the person who, you know, it seems took care of him most of the time. He's listed as the, you know, nearest relative, or he's listed as the person to whom notice of death is to be sent. He's the person apparently who took him to the workhouse. Yeah. And he's, you know, his, his address is given, the Science Square address is given as Aaron's address, you know, at a given time. Of course, you know, I think it's entirely possible that Aaron Kosminski also lived, you know, he may have just stayed out at nights. He may have kind of been somewhat homeless at times. You know, it's really hard to say. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think generally speaking, you know, he was clearly unable to take care of himself financially. So I think the 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 most likely scenario is that he was living with his siblings. And, uh, and I, I suggest uh, Wolf Abrams is the most likely. Okay. Thank you. So, so I think that that Providence Street address is the most likely address for Aaron Kosminski at the time of the murders, in okay. short. I've just got a, a couple of questions, Rob, on Kosminski. The, the first one, to follow on from what Neil uh, Bell was just saying about the potential address uh, close to the site of the Stride murder. What, what struck me about that is that if you look at it, that's actually quite an interesting possibility because it it raises the, the possibility of looking at the double event in a from a completely different direction because I think most people to come to link back to, to in a way Trevor Marriott's talk from that we were talking about earlier that the fact that the way that the the apron and or the graffito um, are often interpreted is that that was the killer going back towards his house or his sort of safe place which would by definition be back in into yes into Whitechapel but into that sort of north of commercial street whitechapel um yeah. most that sort of makes sense for a lot of people i think that you've got someone who has gone out to kill has been interrupted he's gone further away from the scene of the police action has come across another victim and has thought you know he's not sated he's planned it what help however you want to look at it has killed another victim and has then gone gone on further back to where he lives that sort of makes sense to me <laughs> in so much as, as that is the common view. But what we've got, if we're accepting Kosminski as a potential ripper, and Kosminski is potentially living very close to the IWMEC, 
suddenly that's turned on its head and we've got someone attempting a murder actually for the first time in the series, if it is Kosminski, attempting a murder very close to his home and then going further from safety to attempt another murder while he knows the police are out on the streets. And I'm not saying that necessarily makes it less credible, but it's it's an interesting thing that you do if you accept that address, I think. I, I don't know if you... You you would agree with you can see what I'm saying there. You know I think so. It's it's always been hard for me to try and put my put myself in the shoes of these types of people who are you know I mean after you've committed a murder do you all of a sudden go directly home? I don't really know. Uh, but he would for the first time in the series with that third murder if we accept the five he would for the first time be killing very close to his house. So oh, it's yeah. an aberration in itself, isn't it? Right. Yeah, absolutely. But then, as you say, who's to say? Depending, you know, if he's a, a bona fide paranoid schizophrenic, who's to say what's what's an aberration? <laughs> right. Uh, the the other quick question I I just wanted to ask was obviously, and I wasn't sure whether we were able to mention these or not, but Ali has alluded to them um, already. There was some images that you showed at the end of your talk of members of Kosminski's family, which unfortunately and completely understandably, you know, because of the 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 sort of kind of permission that you had from the families um, and the people that had found those, you you couldn't sort of allow people to reproduce and you can't put out on the boards, etc. Right. Um, but obviously we can mention those. Now, you also mentioned when you were doing that, that, you know, you haven't got the, the sort of um, the sort of gold standard, if you like, of a photo of Kosminski, the, ult- the ultimate thing you must be looking for and mentioned right. going maybe to the LMA to look for those. I was just thinking. I was just wondering, and I know this has been brought up before and on previous Kosminski podcasts as well. But but with it, bear, I think it bears asking again with where you are now with your research in, in terms of of a photo of Kosminski from physical descriptions that you have come across. Are there any, you know, in the absence of a photo, what's the best physical description we have? And are there any of the witness descriptions? The classic one that always gets brought up is Lavender. Are there, you know, do, are you still where you are now with your research, is that still kind of the best sort of portrait we've got of Kosminski, that he could have been the Lavender suspect? Are there any other eyewitness sightings that, with things you've found, you think actually, in hindsight, may also fit, Aaron? Uh, There's a few questions, I think, in there. Um, You know, there's no description, really, of of Aaron Kosminski in terms of what he looked like or anything like that. There's, There's a few entries in terms of his weight and his build, um in his asylum record you know but most of those are from from uh you know years later they're from post 1910 really and uh, you know at that time he's quite thin and wasted away but you know of course we know in in the asylum that kosminski refused to eat uh you know so it's entirely possible that he just wasted away and became very thin uh, because he was refusing to eat food uh that doesn't really reflect on whether he was you know, what his build was like at the time of the murders, in my opinion, or anything like that. So there, there is no physical description of him at all. Um, you know, of course, this photo of his sister is interesting because it gives you some kind of general sense of what the family looked like. Um, you know, and as I mentioned in my talk, you know, I don't know how to say this gracefully, but they don't they don't look sort of stereotypically Jewish or Eastern, you know, like Eastern European Jewish people. I don't think you would look at, you know, a picture of, say, Morris Cohen 
or Matilda for that matter and say, oh, they're Jewish. I don't think you could tell that from looking at them. Um, you know, it's, it's also interesting that they're so, you know, well-dressed really. I mean, they look like very respectable kind of upper middle class people. And there's this sense that, you know, from Anderson, for example, he said they were lower class Polish Jews. So, you know, I, I don't know if people get a picture in their head of what they picture Aaron Kosminski looking like from those type of descriptions. There's, we don't know what he looked like. Um, to get to the photos, you know, briefly, um, you know, the family has been very helpful you know, to an extent in in responding to questions. You know, we, we contacted several of the descendants of Aaron Kosminski's siblings. And these photos came from the descendants of um, Matilda. They, you know, vehemently refused to allow me to publish them in the book. And, you know, they did allow me to show them in the talk as the you know, as long as I could sort of guarantee that they wouldn't be reproduced on the internet or something like that. I don't know it's possible that there are photos of Aaron Kosminski in the family. It's possible, but, you know, we haven't found any. We've contacted a lot of these people. Some of them are not really responsive. You know, some of them you get the sense they're very defensive. They don't like the fact that they're descended from a person or, you know, distantly related to a person who may have been Jack the Ripper. Um, but, you know, that angle is sort of dried up at this point. Um, one thing that I think is very interesting is that it's it's almost certain to me that there would have been a photo, I could be wrong here, but I, I believe that there must have been a photo of Aaron Kosminski and in his Leavesden Asylum record. I went to, yeah, and I've talked to you about this, Neil, I think. Yeah. I went to um, the LMA after the talk and looked through all those records and there is a photo album uh, of Colney Hatch. It doesn't include, you know, there, uh, photos were taken on admission and dismissal or discharge, but you know, they, they apparently didn't take photos of everybody. They were a little bit, uh, spotty with it. I think they took photos of probably half of the people. Uh, there's no photo in any case, the photos seem to started around, I think, 1890, uh, say 1893 or something like that uh -huh. so when Aaron Kosminski was discharged in 1894 you know he should have he, he could well have had his photo taken it wasn't but I think that when he was admitted to Leavesden I'm assuming that they probably did the same thing there uh, so unfortunately we don't have those records from Leavesden Asylum they're apparently just gone they're missing they're not at the LMA uh, the the case books from those years don't exist so you know, the, the book that would have recorded Aaron Kosminski at Leavesden just doesn't exist anymore. So I think if it did, you would find his photo, but apparently it's gone. As a, just as an aside on that, Rob, there's at least one person who I've been looking for a photo of in the Leavesden records, and I haven't come across it either. So whether that's that they're, they're all hiding somewhere else or that their record keeping wasn't quite perfect, I don't know. But there's at least one other photo that seems to be missing in action. So it's not right. just that one. Yeah. Well, you got you got to bear in mind for the period that um, it's not like our day and age with digital and bang it all on a computer. They actually had to have space to record um, to to keep these things, and it's, it's very similar with the police. And what what wasn't deemed important or necessary was literally thrown out. Unfortunate as it as it is. Um, so I don't know if they had a policy of, of uh, retention of so many years and then just chucked it. I don't know. Um, but um, it's like I say, it's not like today's day and age where they would keep, record everything and keep it on record. 
That's unfortunate as it is. Yeah, that is the holy grail to me, though. I mean, you know, I would, I would, uh, that's the main thing I would love to find at this point. They used to, I know that, I don't know if it's, it's the same at Leavesden, but, but some asylums, what they used to do was uh, have an admittance photo of the person in such a state, and then they'd have them uh, when they were um, when they were released, as it were, for the ones with the bell. But, um, they had a photo of them all all um, dressed properly, cured. you know, small, right. sorry. Yeah, yeah, basically cured, yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of a before and after. Mm-hmm. Just, so was, sure. I think it was Rob Clack, wasn't it, pointed out the the fact that that Kosminski was transferred rather than right admitted directly from the community yeah. Yeah. by that yeah. procedure might be the problem. The the person I'm looking for died, so that that's probably the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, hopefully at some point we'll be able to get uh, Pat Marshalls, Chris Phillips, and Rob to all come back and have a podcast specifically about the new information on Kosminski. Um, hint. Hint, Rob. Um, is, is there any other follow-ups? So now we're going to skip back in time because we did skip forward ahead a bit for Mr. House so that he could participate and speak about Aaron Kosminski. And at this point, we're going to go back to the first talk of the morning, which was Lindsay Sibiter, Sir William Gull, the man behind the myth. Folks, what have we to say? It was emotional. <laughs> it was... <laughs> It's like Gwyneth Paltrow, wasn't it? It's lovely. No, um, I mean, Lindsay obviously has a passion for uh, Sir William with the goal, um, as we heard um, during the talk. Um, she's the official uh, biographer, autobiographer, or biographer, I should say. Um, I thought it was a very interesting talk because Gull was somebody, obviously, when I first started back in the early 80s, um, quite prominent with Stephen Knight's book, and he's somebody I kind of lost touch with. So it was nice to get in, getting to know William Gull again. I quite, quite enjoyed it, really, to be honest with you. Uh, so, certainly the, the, the tour around the house and his practice and, you know, the Thorpley Soken photos and stuff like that, I really enjoyed it. Neil, story, what did you think? What did you think? Well, I, I can understand when you when you really do care about the person that you've been researching for years, and then you suddenly get up there and you've got emotive music, you've put a lot into your presentation, and it can become a very emotional thing for you, whether you're a man or a woman. And I know from some of my talks about the men that served in the First and Second World Wars, some of whom I knew personally. When I'm giving the talks, it's very difficult sometimes to hold back that emotion because... They're not just men who did something all those years ago. They were personal friends, some of them. Uh, and, and I miss them. You know, they were great guys. Lovely to be with. Um, but I'm sure that also with historical characters, if you really, really do follow them, you, you, you touch the ground, you touch the, the memorials associated with them. I, I think in a moment like that, it, it can become very emotional. Oh, yeah. yeah. I certainly oh, yeah. sympathise yeah. with Lindsay there. Oh, yeah. And I, I enjoyed her talk. I mean, anybody that can speak with knowledge and passion about the subject gets a big tick from me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I say, I mean, it's... it's... Go ahead, Neil. Bell. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Like I said, I mean, it's... it's... Gull is somebody I've not touched upon for, we're looking at probably 10 years or so. So it's really nice to get back and and, uh, hear her current research and what what she's been doing over the the past few years. And um, like I said, seeing the the home and the photographs, uh, Thorpley Soken, I I thought it was was fascinating. It really was. Melanie? Yeah? You seem to have, you were going to say something? 
No, I was just going to say it was a really great talk and it was really nice to see um, Dr. Girl defended for once. I'm actually quite a big fan of him too, um, mainly because of his work into anorexia. Um, and I've always felt, you know, it's really hideous how, you know, his name's basically been dragged through the mud. So I was full of sympathy for, for what she was saying. And I'm really glad it went so well and people were, were so so keen to respond so nicely to it as well. It was good. I look forward to your book as well, but um, she didn't really say when that was coming out or what was happening with that, but I hope it's going to be out soon, because that would yeah. be a really good read. I think it's an ongoing work, Melanie. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll look forward to that in my my retirement when I've got plenty to read it then. Yeah. Okay, well, after Lindsay's talk, we moved into um, Martin Fido, The Rest of the World, on the 30th, September 1888 in which he spoke quite eloquently about everything except Jack the Ripper. <laughs> I thought this would be better at the very start, actually. I thought this would have been a really good opening talk um, mm -hmm. on the Saturday morning, but um, this seemed a bit strange on Sunday. I don't know why. I, th I, th I don't think Martin arrived until midway through Saturday, to be honest with you. I may be wrong on that, though. Saturday. Somebody may be... Yes, absolutely. I had to fly all the way in from the States. It's terrible. Oh, did he? God, God. Yeah, but some people managed to get there on time. <laughs> yes. Yes, I thought it was, it's, like you say, Ali, it's a, it's a talk that didn't mention Jack at all. <laughs> that was quite unique. I've never been to a conference where there's been no mention of Jack or, or the victims or, or some sort of connection to the crimes. So it was quite a unique sp uh, talk. I think a lot of it was very interesting, but then he got into the cricket and the sports, oh, and well, then I just bit. kind oh, of went yeah, right that was, that was absolutely oh, top notch. Oh. No, no, Neil, no, no. <laughs> we wanted more society gossip. Exactly. The that was Neil's favourite bit of the whole weekend. Don't spoil it. Yeah. No, it wasn't actually, Trevor. It was seeing you stumbling around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the bar conversation's coming up soon. Uh, we're on Sunday now, aren't we? No, 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 no. We're we're backtracking. Let's let's skip ahead. Let's get rid of all of these lectures, and then let's get into the real part of this uh, speech, which is Saturday evening, on into Sunday morning. But um, so final final lecture, Laura Richards profiling Jack the Ripper using 21st century techniques to understand a 19th century killer. I will admit I unfortunately missed this um, chat because I had scheduled my timing quite wrong and I'm really quite gutted so I am very interested in hearing what everybody else has to say because I do think that would have been one of my favorites if unfortunately I hadn't messed up my timing so much and had been able to stick around to uh, hear it. So folks, take it away. Tell me about Laura Richards' talk. Oh my God, you have to prove that we paid attention now. Um, no, it was really good. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what Laura did was she she went through a few cases uh, very similar to, um, to Rob House mentioned at the end of his talk regarding schizophrenic killers, but she she mentioned a few cases that she'd worked on, but also how how she would work through through a case from a from an analyst's point of view. Um, it's quite fascinating. Whether it, you could apply that technique to 1888 serial killer, I don't know, but um, it was it's fascinating to see what she actually does. She didn't. Um, she didn't reproduce the uh, the Freddie Mercury portrait from the documentary which she was involved with a, few, a couple of years ago. Um, um, she it was mentioned though, wasn't it? It was. She did mention it. Yeah, she did yeah, mention yeah. it. One thing she said, which she was, which I found interesting, was that in her work she would tend to give 
more emphasis to things which occur in uh, close geographical proximity and close temporal proximity than she would to methods so method might vary but the things they'd be looking for is things happening in the same place and at nearly the same time that's interesting if you think about yeah. martha tabram for example yes yeah 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 well that sort of concludes the conference the speeches and the lecture portion is there anything anybody else wants to say i personally want to say that i have to say out of all the really brilliant talks and conversations that occurred i think my favorite part was really just meeting everybody in the social aspect of it which i know sets me apart as being completely unintellectual and completely you know moronic but it really was the fun parts of it for me were really the socializations the dinner the drinking at the bars afterwards and just having a chance to put faces and mannerisms to people who i've spoken to relentlessly on the boards but never in person yeah i agree i think that's that's a trait in all conferences from my first one in 2007 uh, and, and up until uh, york uh, this year it's it's for me it's it's primary it's the the, the socializing aspect of it is is quite um, up there it's all due respect to the speakers present and those that aren't um fantastic talks but really it's meeting people and, and even speaking with the speakers afterwards i mean I've, I've obviously meeting neil was um a big plus for me and i already know trevor as well but um yeah it, it was it's the, the social aspect is is far more important to me personally than than actually listening to to the speakers again with all due respect to those that spoke no, I'd, I'd agree. No, no, you go, Trevor. Um, no, I just wanted to to say I completely agree about the the social side being, in a way, the, the the best bit of it. And what I did think was quite nice on on Saturday night. I know many of us here were were, were present for it on Saturday night into Sunday morning, and it's something that could have been a little bit mawkish, I suppose. But it was just quite understated and quite nice. It was obviously, as most people are aware, part of the reason that the conference was arranged for this weekend, that it was, was that the, the dates of the double event fell on, on the relevant night. And there was, throughout the, the early hours of Sunday morning, there were various people sort of announcing, you know, a toast to, you know, one o'clock, you know, Liz Stride has just been found, blah, blah, blah. And I thought that was, as I say, it could have been done badly, um, but I think with us all there and, and the time it was, it had to be done and it, and it was done quite well. And I just thought that that deserved a bit of a sort of a flag up that that was that was something for me. That was something quite nice about the about the whole weekend. Yeah, it was it was a moment that was it was respected in a way. Well, it was respected completely. Um, it, like you say, it could sound a bit mawkish, um, but um, the, the way it was done and the way where everybody responded as as a room completely everybody it was, it was it was it was a nice touch it wasn't done with any laughter or any it was just the mentioning of the name the raising of the glass and then people carried on doing what they were doing so neil's story do tell us what did you think of meeting all of these mad and crazy ripperologists well i mean when you work in academic circles you you expect to have a forum where you can discuss things maturely or whatever subject that you're, you're talking about and when you are in polite company, it's not always easy to talk about your enthusiasm and interest in crime history, no matter how much you emphasize that it's a, a reflection on society and it can shed so much light on the unseen history of the 19th and 20th century. So I think to get together and to talk to people who can talk sensibly about the minutiae of the Jack the Ripper crimes, but also the details surrounding society the crimes the times 
the people, the atmosphere, the climate at that time, uh, quite openly, confidently, uh, I thought that was very special. And I think that's more than just a, a, a bond of friendship. It's a bond of people from a variety of different backgrounds sharing a real passion for their subject. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't realise I could stay up until 4.30 in the morning anymore. <laughs> <laughs> neither, neither did I now. <laughs> <laughs> you we both mate. Yeah, yeah, as an American, I went away from that going, my God, British people can drink. Oh, yeah. Can I can I just ask Melanie as, as her first conference as well, what she thought of it and what was her... Um, yeah. I thought it was no, I thought it was great. I had a really good time. I'm quite shy, so um, I wasn't sure what it was going to be like. Um, but no, I had a really good time. It was so nice to meet people and um, have you know really interesting talks and stuff like that. I was on a really boring crap diet, so I wasn't <laughs> drinking all weekend, and I was just going back and going to sleep at like 11:30 at night. So I was really, really, really boring. So I missed. I'm. It sounds like I missed. Um, like the basic crux of what was going on. So I feel a bit gutted about that. But next time I will be getting steaming hammered until seven o'clock in the morning every night. Skype <laughs> me later, Melanie. I'll fill you in on all the details. Disgusting. Yeah, I missed all the gossip and everything. It's like, oh God. <laughs> but no, it was, it was a fantastic weekend. I can't wait till next year. It's going to be brilliant. I, th I think it's up to this point to mention the organisers, um, Colin and Ricky and... Uh, Adam Wood's assistants, and there's Neil and Jenny Sheldon as well. And um, also I'd like to mention um, Andrew Firth's um, excellent package, delegate package. I thought that was brilliant, um, the work that he's going into. I know Jenny helped out uh, with, with the writing as well. Um, so really it should be Neil and Jenny's package. Uh, Neil and Jenny's, sorry, I mean Andrew and Jenny's uh, delegate package. I thought it was brilliant. I, I really thought that was um, <laughs> and one other thing that I think is worth mentioning, um, besides um, the excellent package, is also the fact that Neil Bell um, took time out of his schedule to take us all off into a very dark alley to sort of demonstrate the bullseye lantern, which for me was actually quite interesting because it really gave you an idea of how dark it was and the limited light that there was available um, at that time in order to see. So I do want to... You know, a little round of applause. Thank you to Mr. Bell as well for taking us all around and showing us that. that is, is, is purely my pleasure. It's purely for my own pleasure. But thank you. All right. Well, I guess, um, is there anything else anybody wants to say? Final thoughts, final remarks, final? Great conference. Let's do it all again. Yeah, definitely. I'll second that. Well, yeah. Where shall we go? Yes, Orlando. Oh, I hope Orlando. to be on board again. Orlando. We'll go around Ali's house. Orlando. Hey, I'm waiting for the American conferences to come back, so maybe this will give me the kick in the butt I need to sort of badger somebody else into doing them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a shame that the, I don't know what, what the situation is over in the US, what's happened, but it's a shame because usually we used to run them alternately, alternately um, every year, didn't we? Um, so I don't know what the situation is over there, but it would be great to, to get one, well, get the US one started up again. And I expect you will all come, correct? If, if you're put up with this. I'd certainly be there. I've, I've got some lovely friends. I, I don't have a clue what they look like, but people who've helped me with my book, encouraged my research all the way, lovely people. I bet they'd make some wonderful speakers, and uh, I'd love to be there myself. There you go. All right. Well, I guess that concludes this episode of RipperCast. Thank you all so very much for coming.
We must do it again sometime. And that concludes episode 52 of the RipperCast. We want to thank our participants, Neil Bell, Mark Ripper, Melanie Clegg, Neil Story, Trevor Bond, and Rob House. And of course, we want to thank all of you, our listeners, for hanging in there with us. We look forward to hearing from you. Any comments, questions, proposed topics, send them our way. Maybe they'll be included in the upcoming episode 53. With Andrew Firth's excellent package. <laughs>